This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on meeting the mental health needs of Asian people. I am your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. In this presentation, we've only got an hour, so you're not going to get an in-depth, but we're going to touch on some important issues that you need to be aware of. And if you work with this population, you probably need to learn more about. So we're going to touch on issues that are important to Asian cultures, traditions, and values, and how they relate to mental health. We'll learn about communication styles to help the counselor more effectively communicate with culturally different clients. We'll explore some of the health disparities and appropriate approaches to counseling when working with this population. One thing that is really important when we're, work when we're talking about any sort of um, counseling, when we're talking about any sort of approach regarding culture, it's important to recognize that not everybody embraces any particular culture to which they belong to the same degree. So what we know about, quote, Asian people gives us an idea of what someone who is totally enculturated uh, with the Asian culture may believe, the values they may hold, the traditions they may practice, but it does not necessarily tell you about your client. Your client may reject all or some or much of the culture of origin or of that culture. So it's important to recognize that that, that gives you information. Being aware of the culture gives you information about things which might be important to your client, but it's also really important to be aware of and, and work with your client, ask your client, you know, which parts of that culture are important to them. So Asian Americans have a 17.3% overall lifetime rate of any psychiatric disorder and a 9.2% 12-month rate. Yet Asian Americans are three times less likely to seek mental health services than white people. And a lot of that is due to the cultural beliefs about mental illness. Cultural factors such as language, age, gender, and others can influence the mental health of Asians, particularly into immigrants. So not only do cultural factors impact help seeking, but they also impact the mental health of people. Um, if you are a um, young Asian child that is in public school in, you know, rural America or something, um, that can impact you. Gender, you know, because of different messages about gender from different cultures, that may impact the child. If the child is embracing the beliefs and notions about 
gender um, from their from the Asian culture and they are in public school that may conflict so they may have a hard time um, understanding why other people um, that are of this a similar external gender may act differently than they do. Asians place a great value on the family as a unit. Each individual has a clearly defined role and position within the family hierarchy and is expected to function within that role, submitting to the larger needs of the family. It is really important in traditional Asian culture that you know your place, you don't overstep your bounds, and you make decisions based on how it will influence the family. For example, um, social stigma, shame, and saving face often prevent many Asian people from seeking behavioral health care because mental health issues, mental illness is considered shameful upon the family. So many people will not seek out health care because they don't want to bring shame to their family. And if they do seek out health care, their family may become very upset with them, may, may disown them um, because of taking their issues outside of the family unit. That is seen as not only bringing shame on the family, but disrespectful to the people that are higher in the hierarchy um, to whom they should have asked permission to seek treatment. Asian patients are less likely to express psychological distress um, as mental health issues and more likely to present with physical or somatic complaints. So when we're talking about depression, they may talk about loss of appetite. They may talk about sleep disturbances, chronic pain. They may talk about lack of energy, fatigue. A lot of those physical symptoms that are very, very common that are characteristic of depression. The same thing is true with anxiety and other behavioral health issues. Knowledge of English is one of the most important factors influencing access to care. For patients who are of Asian descent, whether they are first generation Asian Americans or they've been in, in country for a while, um, if they're, if English is not their first language, then counseling may be more difficult, or they may feel more comfortable talking in their native language, even if, you know, they've been raised in America and they speak English quite well, quite fluently. They speak English at school, at work, but maybe at home they speak um, a different, they speak a different dialect. And it's going to be important to make sure that services are available in a language that's appropriate to your clients. As I said a few minutes ago, the level of acculturation will also affect whether they seek care, what type of care they seek, and uh, what issues are important to them. Typically, it takes three generations for immigrants to fully adopt the lifestyle of the dominant culture, if that's what they want to do. And not all families are wanting to adopt the lifestyle of the dominant culture. They may want to retain a lot that is true to their culture of origin, and that's totally cool. Unfortunately, especially in families that are multi-generational, um, you can have a lot of conflict that surrounds that issue. If you've got great grandma that is living in the house and then you've got, you know, great grandchild who is 
wanting to embrace the dominant culture in America, it can create a lot of conflict, a lot of hurt feelings, a lot of misunderstanding. So that may be an issue that we need to attend to. Age. In general, younger people, the younger people are when they migrate, the more readily they can adapt. The older we are, the more comfortable we come become in our routines. The older we are, the more we have had a chance to reflect on our beliefs and our values, and they have become very central to our lifestyle. When children are younger, you know, think about Erickson's stages of psychosocial development. That identity stage doesn't come until about high school. So when children are younger, they haven't really formed a solid identity yet. So that may be more malleable. Once we get into high school and college, a lot of times people have really started to identify for themselves what they believe in and who they are. So changing that and changing culture completely can be very disruptive. Historically, men have acculturated more rapidly than women. That's just kind of studies that are out there. And it is important to just be aware that it may be more difficult in some ways for women to acculturate, especially in the United States, because there is a lot of emphasis on feminism and equal rights. And that is not true in a lot of other countries. So whereas men are dominant in most countries and they come here, they are still seen as dominant. Women may be coming from a country where they are not uh, as powerful, where they are not on an equal footing with men, which when they come to the United States, that's not the case. And, you know, we really emphasize to try to close that gender gap here. And that is something that they're not used to. So we do need to be aware that that um, difference in how women are treated and approached in the United States can make it more difficult for females to acculturate and, and adjust once they get here. And then occupational issues. Sometimes women earn more than men in the United States, and that can disrupt family expectations and traditional values. Men in the family system may feel very insulted if their female counterparts are making more money when they come to the United States. And those things are important to uh, be aware of. When we talk about Asian culture, there it is important to recognize that there is no particular religion that everybody, quote unquote, ascribes to. A lot of people are Christian. There are a lot of Muslims, Buddhists, Confucianism, Taoism, and animism. Now, Buddhism promotes spiritual understanding of disease causation. So when we're talking to someone who embraces Buddhism as a spiritual concept, you know, that will enable us to work with them to help them understand from a spiritual aspect what caused the disease and therefore what's going to help rectify the disease. Confucianism is an ethical belief system that stresses respect for authority, filial piety, justice, benevolence, fidelity, scholarship, and self-development. Confucianism tends to be more introspective. So we're going to potentially ask this person, you know, what is their belief about what caused their current situation 
and what may need to happen. They may be, may believe that their condition is a just punishment for something they did wrong. They may believe that um, it there are things that they have to do in order to earn mental health. So we want to we do want to ask them. We don't want to assume that we know what caused it. We want to understand what how they perceive it. Taoism is the basis for yin and yang theory. So if you think back to dialectical behavior therapy, you think about dialectics. And this can be a very helpful concept when talking about mental health with people because, you know, when with any yin, there's a little yang, and with any yang, there's a little yin. Yin is the cold part, you know, the depression, the low part, and yang is the anxiety, excitability, you know, the, the hot part, if you want to think about it that way. But when we're talking about moods, and we had a vet for a long time that was certified in, in Chinese medicine, and we learned a lot about yin and yang and balancing, um, you know, dry and wet and hot and cold and those sorts of things and how balance is so important to the body. But I digress. With Taoism, we can use this to help people recognize that there's balance in life. When you've got good things going on, it's likely that there's also a little bit of unpleasant stuff. But when you've got unpleasant stuff going on, there's also likely a little bit of good stuff going on because they balance each other. You know, recognizing that that circle that has the, you know, the black and white sides. So we can use that as a discussion to help clients em embrace resilience and hardiness. Animism is the belief that human beings, animals, and inanimate objects possess souls and spirits. We want to talk with our clients if they are uh, believe in animism and talk about in what way that belief impacts their mental health. We want to talk about, you know, how they feel about things. If they believe that inanimate objects like the trees and the grass possess souls and spirits and they just built a house and cleared out three acres of land, you know, they destroyed or disrupted probably hundreds of spirits by clearing out those trees and those bushes and things like that. So they may have some guilt, some anxiety, some negative energy that they're perceiving as a result of changing that environment. You know, there are a lot of different ways we can look at and talk about and conceive of what is causing the negative energy, what is causing the stress that is associated, that is prompting the behavioral and neurochemical reactions and therefore the emotions associated with mental distress like depression and anxiety. Traditional beliefs about mental health in the Asian culture. Mental illnesses are caused by a lack of harmony of emotions or by evil spirits. Could be one, could be the other, could be both. We want to understand what the client thinks. Mental wellness occurs when psychological and physiological functions are integrated. Now, y'all know that this is really part and parcel of my approach to health, wellness, and recovery, that we need to help the body function as well as possible in order to optimize moods. We're not going to help people never feel bad or never be angry because that's not realistic. But we do want to help them balance their energy. We want to help them make sure that their body system is op optimally functioning so it can produce the neurotransmitters and transmit the neurotransmitters so they can feel happy. 
We want to help people learn about their HPA axis or their threat response system so they can identify ways that they may be increasing their cortisol and causing additional stress and emotional dysregulation. Therefore, an integrated approach to treatment works really well. If you are working with a client who is mainly bringing you somatic symptoms, that's okay too, because what do we do with that? You know, you sleep is so important to helping regulate the cortisol levels and the HPA axis. So sleep hygiene is vital to mental health and recovery. And, you know, that is something that the person from an Asian culture may not have an issue addressing. Exercise, sunlight, oxygenation, nutrition. You know, there are a lot of physiological aspects of health and wellness and mental health that we can address to help the person start working toward being in a place where they can feel happy, being in the place where they can uh, be symptom-free or relatively asymptomatic. You know, along with that process, we can also talk about cognitions. You know, we talk about cognitive distortions. We can use that concept of yin and yang and balance uh, to help people, you know, examine overgeneralization, to help people examine some of their belief styles and identify if those belief styles promote balance or imbalance. Buddhists believes Buddhists believe that problems in this life are most likely related to transgressions committed in past lives. If this is true for your client, then that is going to be an important area to address for them. What do they think they need to do in order to rectify this situation? In addition, our previous life and our future life are as much a part of the life cycle as our present life. Just like we talk about having an inner child that may get um, stuck or that may still be hurting. In Buddhist beliefs, they embrace the notion that our our spirits from prior lives are just as involved and influential in our current life uh, as, you know, what is going on right now. And it's important that we forecast our future life. We think about, you know, who we want to be in the future. Now, Asian culture is really broad. And like I said, we don't have time to go through everything, but it's important to recognize that there are differences between different Asian cultures. And I only have, you know, the big four here, uh, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and Vietnamese. Not saying that those are the only Asian cultures, but, you know, I had to hit the highlights. With the Chinese culture, mental illness is caused by lack of harmony of emotions or by evil spirits. For interventions, try tr they often want to try traditional herbs and acupuncture first. Healers may also be used concurrently to help get rid of evil spirits. So with uh, people who are embracing the Chinese culture, working with them and working with uh, traditional healers, is going to be helpful. Working with someone who is certified in Chinese medicine can be very helpful. And again, working with them specifically on physical and physiological interventions they can to improve the harmony within their own body is going to be a great place to start. With the Japanese culture, mental illness is seen by being caused uh, by evil spirits and is often disregarded as a real illness. They may delay or avoid seeking professional help, and many will use traditional sources of care. 
So what does that mean to us as professionals that are, you know, trying to be there, trying to provide services? We need to get creative. We need to think to ourselves, okay, if this person is not seeing this as a real illness or, you know, not seeing this as something that needs to be addressed, what can we do to facilitate getting them information that may help them live happier and healthier? Now, it may not address the evil spirits, and that's something they may have to do with a traditional source of care. However, from a prevention standpoint, getting the message out to everybody that they can improve their um, harmony is going to be really important. So we can put out videos on our website, for example, about um, how they can improve their sleep hygiene, what they can do for um, nutrition. We can put out, you know, a variety of different videos that they can watch in private and to improve their health and wellness, which we know will also probably help their mental health. For people who are Korean, mental illness is seen as a disruption of harmony within the individual or ancestral spirit that is coming back to haunt the patient because of past bad behavior. It may be a result of bad luck or misfortune, payback for something done wrong in the past, and is considered very shameful. Many people who are Korean may deny problems, and they're not likely to re reveal their problems unless they're specifically asked. They may show signs of their distress through nonverbals, and they may use shamanism to try to address some of their issues. Be willing to work, again, with traditional healers, shamans, whatever the person feels comfortable working with in order to address some of the ancestral spirits or bad luck that may be plaguing them. Be willing to consider all sources of interventions, including things like feng shui that can help people arrange their environment to improve flow of energy and improve the positivity. There are a lot of symbols in Asian culture that are associated with happiness and peace and prosperity. Your clients may embrace those ideas or may not. But it's important to be open to using all of those. And when working with clients who are Vietnamese, they see depression as sadness. It's not readily acknowledged because of stigma. And they usually try home remedies, spiritual consultations, exorcists, or Chinese herbs. And family members often try to cheer up or distract the patient. We want to recognize that the family is maybe more involved with clients who are of Vietnamese origin because they are aware of the distress. We're going to talk more about working directly with these clients as we go through the presentation. But I wanted you to see that, you know, there are some similarities, a lot of delaying seeking treatment, a lot of use of alternative approaches and alternative practices that it's important that we are accepting of that we are willing to explore with the patient uh, in order to help them address what they see as is the source of their distress. Beliefs about health. Health is seen as a state of balance between physical, social, and supernatural environment. Just let that sink in for a second. It's a state of balance between their body. So if their body's out of whack, then they're going to have problems, which is why sleep and nutrition and pain management and circadian rhythms and all those things are so important. Uh, 
if their social environment, if their relationship with their family and their community is problematic, then that is going to disrupt that harmony, disrupt that balance. And if their relationship with the supernatural environment, their higher powers, if you want to think of it that way, if their relationship with that environment, the spirits are not, is not healthy, or if there are problems there, then that may also be causing problems. We want everything to be working together in harmony. They're taking care of themselves so they are happy and they are energetic and they can interface effectively with their family systems and their community and do what they see is pleasing to the supernatural forces, if you think about it that way. The Eastern approach assumes that the body is whole and each part of it is intimately connected. Each organ has a mental as well as a physical function. And this is really fascinating to read more about, you know, look at traditional Chinese medicine. And there's a lot of websites online that you can get some high level primers, but it is fascinating. The heart, lungs, spleen, liver, and kidney are yin organs, which is, again, that cold, damp, depression-oriented stuff. So when people are depressed, you know, their heart um, may feel heavy. It may beat slower because they are kind of slowed down. Yang organs, large intestine, gallbladder, bladder, and stomach. You know, think about when you get upset, when you get stressed out, what happens? Your GI system, you know, speeds up a little bit. And that is, you know, some would say the result of activating that HPA axis and increasing adrenaline and stuff. But that is what yang is. That is the the hot, the fast, the high. Think about how symptoms of Western diagnosis of depression and anxiety are physiologically manifested. And, you know, anxiety would be more of a yang. Depression would be more of yin. We do want to pay attention to manifestations of symptoms from our clients if they're reporting um, congestion, you know, chest congestion and, um, you know, maybe lower back pain and they seem to be presenting as depressed, you know, they may be somaticizing some of their depression through those yin organs. Really helpful. You know, we are not, you know, able to effectively, you know, really work with that, but a traditional, uh, Chinese medicine, person can very likely help them connect how those symptoms are connected to how they're feeling emotionally and help them identify ways to start addressing. TKM emphasizes specific, this is traditional Korean medicine, emphasizes specific characteristics of the individual who suffered from the disease rather than a single symptom, which is what traditional Chinese medicine focuses on. And you can read more in those links if you're interested in in that aspect of working with Asian patients. More about their beliefs. Uncertainty is inherent in life and it's each day is taken as it comes. Well, that's awesome. That really promotes mindfulness and being aware and in the moment. A fatalistic attitude about sickness or a belief that all events are predetermined and therefore inevitable may make Asian patients or families seem resigned to their situation. There's a lot of belief in this culture that what is happening has been predetermined. It is potentially a punishment from something that your 
ancestors did. So they may not have a, an optimistic attitude. Talking in terms of beating a disease will not resonate with those who embrace an attitude of acceptance. Acceptance of what life brings does not indicate an unwillingness to cooperate with treatment, but rather a belief that fighting the illness is a negative approach to healing. Instead, and um, acceptance and commitment therapy talks a lot about this, living in the and, instead of trying to get rid of depression, talking about how I can have a rich and meaningful life and experience depression. We want to help people learn how to examine and regain balance. If they are really depressed, if they are really fatigued, then, you know, that is out of balance with their energy and their happiness. So how can we help them get balance back? If they are really depressed and not able to interface with their family or their community, um, or they're out of contact with the, the supernatural powers, you know, how can they regain balance so that system is in harmony again? And how can they enhance their quality of life despite the illness? You know, just like when you have some other chronic illness, an autoimmune disease or cancer or something like that, there are a lot of people who live very high quality, long, rich and meaningful lives and have something have some sort of chronic illness going on. So we want to work with them in that way in order to help align with the way they see life and the way they see recovery. Family dynamics. Now, y'all asked about this at the beginning of class. Extended families are common among Asian Americans with two or three generations in the same household. Major decision-making is the purview of the father followed by the oldest son who receives preferential treatment. So it goes from father to son, not father to mother to son, but father to son. So it's important, remember, this is a very hierarchical system that people know their place and get permission or support from the hierarchy before making decisions or doing things that may impact the family. The mother's job is to nurture and care for her husband and children. Female children in this culture have a lower status than male children. Women usually believe their husbands have a legitimate right to make final decisions and will withdraw from spousal conflict to maintain harmony within the family. That harmony and balance important. Value is value placed on males manif manifests in sex specific infanticide and a disproportionate number of females in orphanages. So if the family, um, immigrated because they had female children or when the, ch the children were uh, brought to the United States from orphan, they may have already received the message as female children that they were less valuable. And that may be something that we need to address if, if they're okay with that. Asian families may value group consensus on healthcare matters. And this is very true in traditional Asian families. It is a group decision about whether any one person is going to treatment, seeking treatment, telling someone outside of the family secrets, even though we know they're confidential and all that kind of stuff. Um, that is very shameful for, for many, many families. And it causes a lot of um, leaders in the family, if, if you want to think about it that way, to, to feel shame, to feel embarrassed. And then they in turn are, uh, feel shame when they're interacting with the community. So it's a, a ripple effect. 
one of the things or one of the reasons I, I bring that up and keep bringing that up is if you're working in a community where there is a high proportion of people of Asian descent, it's going to be important to figure out in what way can we provide supportive services to enhance your mental health, to promote harmony. Instead of getting rid of disease, we want to promote health. And we want to promote harmony. So what can we do? And guess what? The only way we're going to get those answers is to bring in people from that community, elders, spiritual leaders, and asking, um, you know, different questions. Instead of saying, this is what we have to offer, saying, what is it that we could offer? And then figuring out a way to do that. In terms of Family expectations. Children are highly valued in Asian American families. They're taught to be polite, quiet, shy, humble, and differential. Conformity to expectations is emphasized and emotional outbursts are highly discouraged. Well, what do children generally do when they're feeling overwhelmed? A lot of times they melt down or act out and the traditional Asian culture would say that that is not acceptable for a child. That is seen as shameful and evidence of a loss of control. So we want to look for other ways that a child in this culture may, who is feeling overwhelmed, may be communicating that through their behavior. Sometimes it is dream withdrawal. Failure to meet the family's expectations brings shame and a loss of faith to both the children face uh, to both the children and their parents, which is really important. If the family believes that you have to be the valedictorian in your class, if the family believes that you have to win the gold medal or be the first chair violinist or the star quarterback, and the child does not meet that expectation, it is seen as shameful. And there is not that unconditional positive regard. It is seen as very conditional and the child feels very, very guilty for not meeting every one of those parents' expectations. And there are a lot of expectations, not just big goals like that, but daily goals. You know, did you do something? Did you make your bed today? Did you do X, Y, or Z? So children in Asian families may feel a lot of pressure and feel like there are a lot of expectations they have to meet. Education is very important in most Asian families and children who do not do well in school bring shame to their family. Now, reflect on the fact that Asian children, just like other children, are going to have, you know, there's a proportion that are going to have issues like learning disabilities. And it's really super important that we identify any physiological issues like learning disabilities and vision problems and hearing problems early to make sure that that child has the best chance of succeeding academically. Positive reinforcement and discussion of personal achievements is uncommon in the Asian family. There is a lot of notice when you don't meet expectations, but expecting a, an attaboy or an girl is unrealistic. And discussion of personal achievements is seen as bragging and uncouth. So when we're asking clients, you know, what have they done or asking them to tell us about their achievements, they may feel very embarrassed. They may minimize what they've done. And if we provide positive reinforcement, they may not know how to cope with that. I'm not saying not to do it, but I'm saying, you know, don't be effusive with positive reinforcement and don't expect that they're going to get that 
at home. Adolescence has limited meaning in most Asian cultures because seeking a definition of self outside of family is discouraged. Definition of self comes within family. Um, and there you are basically told who you are, what you will do when you grow up, what values you will hold. Parents expect children to acquire the language and skills that will enable them to be successful in their new country, but are reluctant to have them fully embrace most aspects of American culture for fear that they will abandon their native culture. For example, parents may encourage their children to learn English, but may refuse to allow them to speak English at home. This is very common. The children are provided the skills to function within American culture, but when they are at home, they are immersed in Asian culture. Such confusing messages often lead to transgenerational conflict. Elderly Asians look forward to having their grown children care for them. Elders tend to have full control over family and financial decisions, whether or not they live with their children. So grown Asian people, you know, that are 20, 30, even 40 years old, may be calling their parents when it comes to making family and financial decisions, because even though they don't live in the same domicile, there is still that hierarchy and the elders have a say and often the final say in what happened. Most elderly Chinese immigrants are not inclined to value independence. And when they live separately, it is to avoid conflict over family roles. Elders are highly respected and honored by most Asian cultures. In extended Chinese families, grandparents often are responsible for the care of grandchildren. Family-related stressors. Young adulthood means achieving for the family. Young Asian American adults begin to question their family values. Interpersonal relationships, like for everybody, become more of a challenge during young adulthood. Interracial relationships may cause serious conflicts because of the parental fears that biracial children will diffuse the family lineage or culture. Many Asian adults may misunderstand the meaning of the transient relationships that are common in urban settings in the West. Young adults also face a dilemma of dual identity, often the home and public, especially if Again, if at home they're expected to immerse themselves within the Asian culture and in public they try to embrace the uh, American culture. The obligation to parents takes precedence over the individual's choice of career. Choice of career that is different from that chosen by his or her parents can result in loss of emotional and financial support. Now, this is not unique just to Asian families, but it is important to recognize that this may be something that a, an Asian youth is, may struggle with. Often, Westerners have a hard time figuring out all of the customs and formalities in China, especially because they are so different from the customs and formalities in other Asian countries. It's a mistake to assume that Chinese customs are like Japanese ones or Vietnamese, etc. The two countries are very different, and Chinese will be quite insulted if you assume their culture is like Japanese. When a Chinese person asks someone their age, they often do this so they know how to address the person. So make sure, you know, if a client asks you how old you are, you know, you don't get insulted. In China, it's rude to call somebody by their first name unless you've known them since childhood. In work-related situations, people address each other by their title. So when you're working with a client, it's important to ask them, what would you like me to call you? Generally, you haven't known your clients since they were children. 
So they may prefer if you call them Mr. or Mrs. something or, you know, whatever. And they will likely be very uncomfortable calling you by your first name. It's important to, you know, allow them to call you what they feel comfortable with and to ask them, what do you want me to call you? Chinese people sometimes don't smile or exchange greeting with strangers. Smiling or being friendly to someone you don't know well is sometimes considered rude and very too familiar, kind of creepy. When they don't know you, don't expect them to be making a lot of eye contact and smiling. That is not the way traditional culture handles things. When saying goodbye, it's considered appropriate to give a quick bow or nod to everyone present and go. That's another behavior, nonverbal, that may be important to learn and to follow the lead of the client. If the client gives a, a quick bow, then it may be appropriate to give one back. A limp handshake is regarded as a gesture of humility and respect. When a Western man meets a Chinese person, especially a woman, he should wait for the other person to offer their hand first before offering to shake hands. Both the thumbs up or tugging on the earlobe are signs of excellence in Chinese culture. An outward pointing raised pinky means you are nothing poor quality, or not very good at something. So that can be very offensive. The Chinese consider it rude to look someone directly in the eye, cross your arms or your legs, or have your hands in your pocket when you are speaking to them. That's something that we really want to be conscious of when we are working with clients uh, who are who embrace the, the Chinese culture to make sure that we are not non-verbally being offensive. Chinese usually focus their eyes on the lower neck of the person they're talking to, stand very close to them, and try to avoid staring. Chinese people don't like it in general when Westerners point at people, don't show proper respect, boast, and offer their opinions too readily, want immediate answers, and show a lack of patience. They consider it rude to say no directly and often say something like maybe or even yes when they really mean no. So if you're talking with them about what they want to do, what they think would be helpful, um, number one, ask. Don't ask suggestions. Be more Socratic. Ask them what they think would work instead of giving too many opinions. And if you're asking them to do something that requires some sort of a yes or no answer, make sure that you present it in a way that it's okay to say no. Um, and remember that punctuality is important because it demonstrates respect. So if you're running 15, 20 minutes late, you know, that is disrespectful anyway, but is, it's, it is seen as extremely disrespectful in the Chinese culture. With Japanese culture, saving face is crucial and harmony is a key value. The number four should be avoided because it's extremely unlucky and sounds like the word for death. Um, and some people who are Japanese will not want an appointment at four o'clock. Um, they may not want to be in a room that has the number four in it. Like if your office number is 1445, be aware of that. Wear conservative colored clothing. Um, when working with people who are Japanese, there's a general stigma associated with mental illness. There's a concept of shame or haz hazukashi. Uh, somatic talk becomes a culturally coded idiom of distress to avoid being labeled with a psychiatric disorder. So they're going to talk of fatigue. They're going to talk of insomnia. 
They're going to talk of, you know, an upset stomach. Somatization in Japan, in Japan then can be understood as an inherently ethical event that has more to do with morals than medicine. They are trying to protect their family. They are trying to find a way to rebalance harmony without bringing shame. Typically quiet and polite, they tend not to disagree or ask too many questions. A lot of times if you're using, for example, um, psychoeducation or cognitive behavioral approaches, we rely on people asking questions or being willing to disagree and saying, no, that doesn't work or that doesn't make sense. And People who embrace the Japanese culture may not be as comfortable doing that, especially since you're seen as someone who is an expert. You are seen as someone more powerful in many ways. And again, punctuality is important. With Japanese culture, they also may have little direct eye contact. And remember that just like they may say yes when they really mean no, they may not disagree with you. Nodding does not necessarily mean understanding or agreement. So it's important to have them potentially paraphrase things. Um, if you're asking them to do something, to make sure that they understand what you're asking them to do. The Japanese view of the self is one in which the individual is seen as socially embedded, in which dependence on and compliance to others' wishes is crucial for harmony. Symptoms can be seen in terms of how the person is in disharmony with their social environment. A Western diagnosis of mental illness implies that there's something wrong with the purity or the morality of oneself. They're in disharmony. From the Japanese, a person's true beliefs are not necessarily the same as his public pronouncements. So a lot of times, because they don't want to disagree or be disrespectful, they may hold internal beliefs, but outwardly say something else. Any emotional outbursts may be perceived as a sign of character weakness and is typically avoided because such be behavior threatens social harmony. In terms of Korean cultural concepts, gibun loosely, loosely means one's current emotional state or temperament. It can, can also mean hurt, for example, when someone is not shown the proper respect by a subordinate. Nunchi is much like empathy and is essential to assessing others' gibun or their current emotional state and act so they can act accordingly and tactfully. Nunchi is something that you do or do not have. If you don't, you're liable to unwittingly hurt others' feelings or make a faux pas. So think of it like emotional intelligence. Nunchi can also relate to assessing how others view you. Many people, especially Koreans, care about what others think of them. If you're busy looking at others' nunchis, it means you're spending much time caring about what others are thinking of you. In American culture, a lot of times we emphasize focusing on how you see yourself and less about others' opinions. That is in direct opposition in many cases to Korean cultural concepts. Han is a deep feeling difficult to precisely capture with words, but it's a combination of sorrow, anger, and helplessness due to greater forces of oppression. It can also represent hope of over overcoming the injustices in one's life and for a better tomorrow. The Korean concept of Jiang is the feeling of affection, concern, understanding, loyalty, warmth, and emotional connection. You can feel Jiang for your family, friends, lovers, teachers, co-workers, strangers, and even for places and objects such as your hometown or your first car. So it's something that has a special place in your heart. In Korean time, which differs from other Asian cultures, there is a 
uh, pattern of widespread tardiness or more specifically a relaxed attitude toward appointment times. Being a few minutes late to an appointment without giving prior notice is almost the norm among friends and even being late by an hour or more is not uncommon. It's important to be aware of this if you're working with someone who is Korean and you do have problems with punctuality with them showing up to their appointments on time to let them know how important it is for them to do that in your setting. When a Korean is the one having to wait, previously acceptable delays suddenly become a big deal. A wait of as little as five minutes, particularly when waiting for food at a restaurant or for a bus, often leaves a Korean person flustered and tapping their watch repeating, why is it not coming? So it's important to recognize, you know, if you are running late, it's potentially going to be a real deal. Common stressors, parental pressure to succeed in academics, discussing mental health concerns is considered taboo, causing many Asian Americans to dismiss, deny, or neglect their symptoms. Pressure to live up to the idea of being the model minority stereotype um, causes a lot of stress. And this is a view that inaccurately portrays Asian Americans as successfully integrating into mainstream culture and having overcome the challenges of race, racial bias. So we want to recognize that that is still a big issue and it's an inaccurate um, portrayal. Family obligations based on strong traditional and cultural values can also add stress, especially to younger generations. There can be discrimination due to racial or cultural background for everyone within the family. There may be a difficulty in balancing two different cultures and developing a bicultural sense of self. Traditional Asian expectations of women conflict with white American ideals that emphasize independent thinking, achievement, and self-sufficiency, even potentially at the expense of others' feelings and needs. Having women, for example, who are supported in this culture from um, to going to work and leaving children at school or with nannies um, may not be acceptable in Asian culture. These conflicting values can play out in several ways. Stress and conflict can lead to isolation and withdrawal or acting out behaviors, which can cause depression. Spousal conflict can occur as women work in and interact with a culture in which their status is compared to that of a husband. Resistance to or refusal of psychiatric treatment resulting from chronic low self-esteem or the belief that it will bring shame on their family can lead to a sense of fatalism. They may feel like they're never going to be able to be happy or get any better. Among persons age 15 to 24 and older than 65, Asian females are at the greatest risk of suicide compared with women of all other racial groups. So Asian females 15 to 24 and older than 65. It's an important, you know, trigger to be aware of. Fear of help seeking among the community, believing if anyone finds out they will be ostracized, keeps a lot of Asian people from seeking treatment. Additionally, distorted stereotypic images of Asian communities as evil, mysterious, exotic places filled with gangsters, warlords, and prostitutes, which Hollywood movies often portray, contribute to stressors because People who are Asian are constantly trying to dispel the myths that mainstream media may have promoted. Successful assessment of mental health problems in the Asian American patient is based on practitioner awareness of the individual patient demography, 
their age, their um, their ethnicity, how long their family's been in country, the degree of acculturation. You know, there's a lot of factors that we need to look at. The patient's belief about health and mental health, which we will only know by asking. Eliciting an explanatory model from the patient about what is causing their distress and what possible interventions might be helpful. Negotiation around acceptable diagnosis and treatment involving, you know, complementary sources as needed. And the use of the family support system to increase adherence to treatment regimens and reduce barriers. Obviously, the family has to be on board to get their support. And if the family's not on board, then the person may not even be able to partake in treatment. Complementary approaches. TCM practitioners don't see mental disorders as any one syndrome. It treats specific syndromes with the goal of rebalancing the body's inner function. Tai Chi, acupuncture, Reiki, herbal medicine, nutrition, and feng shui are all approaches that may be used. With yin and yang theory, you know, we talked about a lot already about balancing the dark and the light, the cold and damp with the hot and dry. It's important to understand how this is manifest within the body or how they believe it's manifest within the body. Korean traditional medicine. Lee Jima classified human beings into four main types based on the emotion that dominated their personality and developed treatments for each type. Uh, greater yang, lesser yang, greater yum, and lesser yum. Moxibustion is a technique in which heat is applied to the body with a stick. The tool is placed over the affected area without burning the skin. The cone or stick can also be placed over a pressure point to stimulate and strengthen the blood. A lot of uh, traditional um, Asian practices involve opening up chakras and balancing chi. Chakras are spiritual energy centers. Meridians are energy paths in the body through which that chi flows. You have to have balanced chakras and meridians in order to be physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually healthy. So think about chakras as the highways that the energy flows through. The seven main chakras are located at very various points along the spine and correlate with various meridian points flowing along the spine. There are 12 main meridians, six are yin, six are yang. It's really fascinating to look into acupressure points um, and learn more about chi, chakras, and meridians. With acupuncture, traditional acupuncture unblocks meridians and is vital to allowing the free flow of chi. Acupuncture is as effective as cognitive behavioral therapy and comparable to the use of SSRIs when treating depression. When acupuncture is used in combination with cognitive behavioral therapy, the overall effectiveness of treatment is often given a boost. Acupuncture has been identified as a promising practice for use in addiction treatment to reduce cravings. With some clients who used injectable drugs, magnets can be used in place of needles. So you can read more about that by clicking on the hyperlink in the PowerPoint. Feng Shui. Qi is the life's breath or energy that binds life together. The practice of feng shui teaches people how to influence the qi and its effect on our daily lives. There are three main forces of qi that sustain all life. Cosmic qi, which is the force of nature. Human qi, which is the energy inside each person. And earth qi represents the way the earth's energy affects you. In feng shui, the house is viewed as a whole being in which one is 
one part is intricately connected with the other. The environment can be thought of as a reflection of your internal self, and your environment has an effect on your energy on a constant basis. To create good feng shui in your home, first identify the areas that need the most attention and define the steps necessary to improve these areas. Many people completely ignore the areas that feel like too much work, such as the garage, the laundry room, or the closets, which ironically, when we talk uh, metaphorically, uh, we say we keep skeletons in our closet. So that may be a reason that we may need to look at our closets. The Bagua is a chart that represents um, where energy flows in uh, feng shui. You can learn more about that. Tai Chi is a gentle exercise program that's part of traditional Chinese medicine and is composed of slow, deliberate movements, meditation, and deep breathing that enhance physical health and emotional well-being. It's based on spiritual and philosophical ideas that advocate a need for balance in the mind, body, mind, and spirit. Central to Tai Chi is the idea that Qi flows throughout the body and must be able to move freely for good health. Yin and yang are complementary forces in the universe and Tai Chi seeks to harmonize these pairs of op opposites. Tai Chi has three major components, movement, meditation, and deep breathing. So tips for providers, really quick. I know I've run over a little bit. Check for understanding about the client's perception of an degree of enculturation. It's too easy to misinterpret a common gesture as an agreement or understand when the patient is actually confused or assume that we know their level of acculturation. Asian patients and families will also be reluctant to complain or ask for clarification. We want to make sure they understand. Avoid the use of yes, no questions because a lot of times they won't say no. Establish your role and assume authority. That is what is often wanted in traditional culture. Be patient and consider periods of silence as opportunities for reflection on what has been said. Provide clear and full information such as what is expected from each participant. Be attentive to nonverbal clues. Most Asian cultures have a very high context communication style, which means they say more nonverbally than they do verbally. Address immediate needs and give concrete advice. Avoid direct conflict and reach consistent consensus by compromising. It's most effective to educate the entire family while treating the patient. When seeing an Asian American patient, the family often accompanies the patient into the interview room. So we do want to ask the patient if this is, you know, okay with them and, you know, facilitate that if that is what is appropriate. All right. Thank you for sticking with me. I know I ran a little bit late. Um, the, that information um, you can read a lot from the different hyperlinks and URLs that were within the presentation, but you can also go to SAMHSA's tip on working with culturally diverse populations, which is what the majority of this presentation was based on. So that is available at, um, on the SAMHSA website in the SAMHSA store. And it is important when you're working, um, with different clients, uh, 
to identify, you know, work with them to identify whether they embrace, they see themselves as Asian Americans or they see themselves as Asians or Chinese or Japanese. How is it that they define themselves? And to recognize just like, you know, there are lots of different micro and macro cultures within the United States. There are lots of different micro and macro cultures within China, within Japan, within Korea, within Taiwan. Uh, so it's important to recognize all of those things. And like I said at the beginning, this is ju was just meant to give you a really super incredibly high level overview of some of the issues you may need to be aware of. But the most valid, accurate, and helpful information will come directly from your client. Alrighty, everybody, have a wonderful day, a wonderful weekend, and I will see you on Tuesday. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.